You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here for your murder mystery world tour, and we are back with Herds. What I think Uh-oh. may be my most anticipated novel ever of oh, the okay. year. Yeah, okay. Well, that's that's not th- that impressive. Let's be real. Come on. I would have said of all time. How uh, dare you? How <laughs> dare you? What? I'm just saying of all time or of the decade or of the century would have been much more impressive. You're right. You're right. Really, we should go into pure exaggeration. <laughs> this is Good. The Greatest Book of All Time by Solari Gentil. Thank you. The Thank woman you. in the library. And we are discussing the most extravagant chapters in it. Mm-hmm. One mm-hmm. to 11. Wow. It's going to go down from here? Okay, well, I better tip my expectations uh, uh, then. Well, I just have to come up with other superlatives okay. to describe it within the following week's herds. Other exciting superlatives. Look, I'm ready. I'm ready to hear what sort of creative <laughs> superlatives you can come up with. So at the end of last year, we ranked Solari Gentil's Crossing the Lines, her previous metafictional standalone book, as our highest recommended novel of previous year's coverage. The Woman in the Library is another standalone from Solari Gentil, telling the story of four writers who meet in auspicious but harrowing circumstances in the Boston Uh. Public Library and go about becoming entangled in the ensuing investigation. It's great. It's great. And it's one of those fun meta novels. So we can have a line like, the scream drew them together. And this is one of the four writers, like, explaining basically how the story is going. It's great. One thing that has been fun getting deeper into the crime fiction community has been kind of getting to see the bits and pieces behind the scenes of this. I've seen so many quotes and messages from Solari talking about what became this manuscript of her juggling with tents Mm. and toying with two different narrators and separating the like overlapping bits and pieces that we had in crossing the lines into more like distinct narratives And what that results in is the structure of each of these chapters being two thirds, three quarters of our writer Hannah's story Mm -hmm. uh, with her self insert character, Mm -hmm. Winnie Kincaid, followed by a few paragraphs of email from devoted reader and pen pal. Idiot. uh, An idiot. Yes. Leo Johnson. (laughs) This is ridiculous. Also in the story. It's so good because there's essentially like three levels, right? Like there's Leo talking to Hannah and we kind of infer uh, that, that Hannah is responding because Leo says like, in response to your question about American culture, you being a writer in Australia and all, but we don't get to see what Hannah is saying. So you can kind of infer things based on the way that he, he signs off his emails in a different way every time. It's insane. Mm -hmm. Anyway, but that's the first level. That's the top level. Of the us, of course. And then below <laughs> Leo and Hannah, we have the four, the four like main writers, yeah. uh, being Freddie, Kane, Marigold, and Wit. Those are the the four like main writers and the characters they interact with in their murder. But then below that, every single one of those characters is also writing a story, and we are told through the lens of Freddie, our proper protagonist, the ways in which those four characters are writing their stories. For example, she writes like she's on a bus and people getting on the bus and she's imagining how they interact with each other in that confined space going somewhere, tying up the way that all of the writers are writing their stories with, I think Kane has like a web. Marigold is like a psychology student. So she has kind of a more detail oriented way of looking at things, I guess. Like they all have these different ways of writing. And obviously Solari has written each of these writers, Hannah included, 
to reflect their character and the way that they write. I think the other thing that's great about it with all of these different characters and their facets is that the first time we meet them, mm-hmm. because of the intentionally skeletal kind of structure of the plot, the first time we meet them, we're only kind of given a couple of descriptors of them. You know, Marigold chin. is Freud girl. <laughs> Kane McLeod is handsome man. Whitmetters is heroic chin. My favorite one. <laughs> it's pretty good. Um, and then after, you know, a few suggestions in an email from Leo and a few chapters down the line, then we actually get to learn their names. And there's this ambiguity as to where the separation between the characters that she's writing and the quote unquote real characters of the story are, because, you know, Leo is in both realities. Hannah is writing Winnie's perspective in first person about an Australian author on residency in Boston. So there's definitely like a level of self-insertion there that raises a lot of questions about the other characters in the story. I will say, because I've read a couple of, you know, I've, I've read a couple of metafiction texts. I'm not- unfamiliar. A couple, a couple of books? Just a couple of metafictional books. Just a few, just a few very long metafictional books. <laughs> and I think that the aspect that kind of sets this one apart for me, other than the bit of everybody just being a writer all the time, like that's very silly, but- the fact that we get these like the letters or emails or whatever from from Leo, yeah, in which Leo will point out incorrect facts or contradictions or things that they, they would say, you know, the, a prank call we would call that a crank call, like yeah, that's like the colloquialisms common that she's gotten yeah, wrong. Because lots of little things. Hannah's Australian. Yeah, lots of little things like that, and obviously we're not actually getting to read the final product. We're getting to read the last version before the final pass with Leo's input. And I guess before the editor gets to go over it, which in itself brings up questions. Why are we not getting the final product? Does something happen to Hannah before the end of the book? Yeah, <laughs> which it, is great. it very much has the energy that this book, <laughs> I mean, we were speaking with Benjamin Stevenson a few weeks ago about how like metafictional texts kind of shoot themselves in the foot with the premise that the, mm. the, the book is already out there. So thus someone must have lived to record exactly. it. But because of the way it's all framed by draft text and emails, Maybe Hannah doesn't finish the story. Yeah, I, I, we'll, we'll get to all those wonderful theories and things, I'm sure, in the third part. But we know that Solari writes historical mi- murder mysteries. And so taking the frame of kind of uh, we're kind of dredging up the logs, like the logbook yeah. or the journal of this person who is writing a story. And we're seeing how, you know, the way that she writes Leo, because I, I don't like Leo very much. I'm sure that different people have different experiences with him. But Can like- we- well, he's let's kind say of an annoying Leo, fanboy. Leo is insufferable, he, but he's insufferably the best part of the book. <laughs> let me let me just say the fact that she writes this whole chapter about how like annoying Leo is and all these weird quirks. Yeah. And then Leo writes back and says, Wow, I'm so glad you put me in the book. Such a flattering portrayal. <laughs> and I'm like, that was not a flattering portrayal, my dude. You so good. <laughs> Yeah, it's phenomenal. It's a beautiful chapter. Can I can I tell you something about this book, Herds, that you haven't come across yet? Oh, what's this? You'll remember the first time that we spoke to Solari, we asked her about the book club uh, questions yes. that she had up on her website. Uh-huh. I think they're still up there, actually. And they've made a return. What do you mean? At the back <laughs> of this book, 
we have a bunch of questions. That's terrible. And I, I have a couple of these that I'm going to post to you in the mystery section, but there's, okay, there's one uh, dealing with this section of the book where Marigold insists to the others, and I'm quoting this directly, mm-hmm. a scream is supposed to bring help and we heard her scream. It's a good line. Do you think of yourself as being responsible for strangers? Uh, How effective is bystander intervention? I was going to say, we're going to talk about the bystander effect and how like, if you're in a public place and you see someone needs help, like 99% of people will just keep walking because they don't see anyone else helping. They don't want to be the person who stands out. Like all those different psychological factors. And there's also, and maybe this is most prevalent in this story. I'm not, I'm not sure, but the idea of if you go to help the person who is in trouble, you might get like drugged down with them. Yeah. Yeah. So if we go to where this poor person is screaming because they're being murdered, won't you also get murdered by the murderer in this story? And like in murder mystery, that's a real thing. The, so. the other thing metafictionally that's fun about it is the bystander effect of like reading books, the like learned sure. helplessness that you have from reading fiction where the outcome is predetermined. Like, you know, for Solari as a writer, as a pantser who is going through and effectively uncovering this story as she goes with us, the bystander effect for us as the audience as opposed to her as the writer is extremely different Mm. like you know maybe there is an urgency for hannah and winnie and solari on the various levels of reality to do something about this but they also have to not because it wouldn't make as compelling of a story and i i i love that thought in relation to the way that you know this this group of newfound friends comes together after a tragedy that they were only adjacently connected to. Look, I'm just excited for when we get to, because you know, there's, there's the bus metaphor that, that Freddie's using to write with. I'm excited for the bus to change from just a regular bus into the speed bus at some point where like <laughs> we can't, we have to slow down the bus, but we can't because we have to see how the novel ends. And it's just, it just gets crazier and crazier for there. We start ejecting passengers. Oh, you're saying the way that we solve this is by looping video camera footage so that the killer is still observing it. Yeah. I mean, the idea of looping recordings definitely factors into my theory this week. So I'm excited. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. I'm excited to get into this. (laughs) Oh man. This is going to be ridiculous. What an absolute right. I suppose the other thing that we should recount is that Carolyn Palfrey, who is the body in the Boston Public Library. The woman, the body, yeah. Yeah, she's a tabloid writer uh, for a, a paper called The Rag. The Rag, yeah. She She's also a Brahmin, which I don't entirely understand what that means. It means there's some sort of upper class individual. It, she, she's basically part of old money in the city. Old, old money. Um, well, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, obviously there are themes of class equality kind of s- speckled mm. throughout the story. Yeah. Like the person who is the the body in the library is this like, old money lass and we hear the story from from kane mcleod uh alias abel manners yeah that's a what an on-the-nose name <laughs> good grief leo loves yeah. it though anyway well i mean that's the point that i was gonna get towards is that carolyn's body is only ever seen off screen by characters other than winnie yes and this entire case is kind of presented through the words of other writers Mm -hmm. and you know the only inkling that we have that a murder even took place is that there are fbi officers who show up when someone else gets stabbed in the story and the insinuation is that they're also investigating the other murder but you know it's, it's all told through like news bulletins and our 
detective group never actually lays eyes directly on the scene. We're not quite the third part yet, but let's put it this way. There's FBI. There's a detective named Kelly who we know shockingly little about. Yeah. Um, the only one of the four of them that actually sees the body is is Wit. There are some interesting funnels of information, I'd like to call them, that we're going to have to get to. There's also, because this is a modern day story, some technology involved. There's the phone calls where we like hear Carolyn's scream again. It's horrifying. But yeah, there's there's a lot of moving parts in this mystery. And definitely, as you say, not being to being able to actually go and inspect the body ourselves. It definitely creates complications, but it also, I think, opens up some answers. It's very bizarre in a way, because to me, this feels like structurally and clues wise to be the most traditional murder mystery that Solari has written. And yet, <laughs> like, we still don't see the corpse. We no. never actually visit the scene of the crime. Everything is told through the words of other people. Mm-hmm. And we have this entire layer of metafiction. And it's it's just so enticing seeing that structure put to play with Solari's signature deft hand of befuddling metafictionality. I'm sure you're at least tangentially aware of this, but this 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 novel's title has some similarities to a, a Christie work with, with Miss Marple in it, and she she does tend to solve murders through gossip. So it makes sense that we are only hearing rumors and whispers uh, and not quite getting the, uh, the in-the-face picture quite yet. Ah, I see. I tap the side of my nose knowingly. <laughs> Good. That's what I'm looking for. You're listening to Death of the Reader. We are discussing the newly released The Woman in the Library by Solari Gantil, chapters 1 to 11. We'll be back with more of that in just a second. Stick around. You're on to SCR 107.3. You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex and Herds here for your murder mystery world tour. And Herds, we have a rare and special privilege oh today. Do we? We are covering The Woman in the Library by Solari Gentle, chapters 1 to 11. Herds is in the hot seat solving this murder mystery, and this is the newest book we have ever covered on the show Actually, as wow. a full feature. It's impressive. We're getting, we're getting I'd say, younger. We're, we're, we're rediscovering the hunt for knowledge, for new things, for fresher game. I, I want to be I want to be clear. <laughs> yeah. If you're listening to these episodes, like often on the show, we try, you know, we're enthusiastic. There is no neutrality on this show because we only feature the things that we like. But there is implicit, I think, in the the coverage and, and journalism of entertainment products, a aura of professional uh, distance, separation mm-hmm. uh, from the text I want to let you know before we say anything in the following section uh-huh. that no such professional separation was, or distance exists. Say. <laughs> Solari is a wonderful friend and ally behind the scenes, and I dearly love her books. Mm-hmm. So please, if you've read a Solari Gentle book and thought to yourself, eh, you know, this isn't exactly for me, just know that we are currently inside the heads of Two fanboys. We're, we're inside the heads of, of two Leos, you might say. Uh, two very annoying fans who keep sending poor Solari Gentil letters that she doesn't want. And when she puts us in her books, 
telling us, you know, how annoying we are. We think, oh, thanks. Listen, let's keep Solari Gentle said I had to speak my Crossing the Lines review at her funeral. And yeah. I, I don't know what more to say. I think that is a fairly self-explanatory point. Entirely tangentially unrelated. The reason that I ended uh, chapter 11 as, as, our, as our point of choice today uh-huh. uh, was because it ends with Leo uh, commiserating the death of <laughs> Hannah's oh my lord! after turning down his magnum opus. What a ridiculous ending to a chapter. Like, I, oh. I thought from the beginning, you know, we've got these different layers. Clearly there's going to be characters in both and, like, probably a murder in both. Yeah, yeah. But the fact that Leo, he just drops it. He's like, yeah, like, that, that like, friend of mine, that, like, lady who was supposed to publish my work, like, she's just disappeared. Like, I don't know what happened. I said this like, to you when I was uh, reading the book, but- there's a there's a moment the chapter before which is where I was originally going to end until I read this bit mm. uh, where Leo is like oh you know I got a rejection letter from your agent <laughs> and it's it's very sad it's just such a shame that I you know don't fit the diversity quotas that all yes. these publishers oh, have to fit so and I swear I heard an audible click in my head when I read that line <laughs> <laughs> no I was like holy crap yeah <laughs> this is this is the the ticket the money the big source yeah no there's definitely a larger story here like there's the very traditional you know woman in the library story and then there's yeah. the Anastasia in the dis- disappearing it's not quite as catchy of a book title is it but um <laughs> I look I I, I uh, Leo is such a bizarre character to me because mm-hmm. I want to suspect him I really do yeah I'm looking at my list of characters which there are not that many characters in this book thank goodness Solari thank you you're an angel <laughs> In terms of the meta space, uh, there are there are four characters who are like directly mentioned that seem vaguely important. There's Hannah, who's our writer. There's Leo, who I hate, and Diane is apparently Leo's partner, either in crime or lover or professional acquaintance. It's not like one hundred or, or family. It's not one hundred percent clear. But if I had to stick a murderer tag on somebody, it would be her. Purely because we have no clue who she is. Leo specifically says, like, I could not bring up my opus to Alexandra. So Diane had to do it for me. I feel like if Leo, for example, refused to murder Alexandra Gainsborough, I think that Diane would step up to the plate. I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Really? I would I would I would say she is the a horrible murderer. Look, let's be real. I, I guess the question that I have is that it, it sounds to me almost as though uh you, you've separated the Leo who has potentially killed Alex Gainsborough and, and Diana uh from the Leo in Hannah's text. Is is that something that is like significant to your theory that the uh the the murderer in our second layer of reality is different to our our third i mean okay let me put it this way the way that i went about trying to solve this text as much as i think i can because let me put it this way the why is beyond me i have no clue i am so far gone but let's let's just let's not get ahead of ourselves here but something that i started looking at was the questions and the the, the theories that leo started to kind of gravitate to because my theory is that Solari Gentil's trick here is that Leo is essentially a walking red herring. He, every single thing that he talks about, where he talks about 
the vents you could hide in. And like, oh man, Kane is definitely our killer. You better not give him away too early. Like all of these things. And he's like the line where he says, oh, you said that, uh, that, that Freddy is about to sit down with the killer. That means that there are four suspects. Mm-hmm. I think that his ramblings and his theories are positioned to directly throw you off what is really going on. I think that Leo, as Hannah's confidant and fan and annoying friend, is that that's his like position in the story. I think that he's there to like seem suspicious and give us clues that are ultimately going to turn out to be like the opposite of what we expected to. Really? That's okay. that's where I that's where my head is currently. I'm sure that we'll see how things go as we as we move through, <laughs> but like that's that's the way I'm trying to tackle this story for now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's interesting. I I think my my pertaining theory around this point in the novel, sure. uh, n- not I think with any aura of confidence, so much as the kind of theory that I had for the sake of having a theory that I could cross check against what was yet to come up. Sure, was that Kane was going to be the culprit of everything, and that Kane, yeah. and Leo, uh, much like Kane and Abel Manners, mm-hmm. uh, were actually going to end up being relatives working together on a conspiracy because oh. we have all of these elaborate shots Kane. of like yeah. Kane over video communications with like a big conspiracy board and webs and thread behind him. You know, Leo's leaving gifts. They live like in the same apartment building and there's someone who has inexplicable access that keeps <laughs> leaving stuff at people's places. There are some bizarre I, things. I, to say nothing of uh, of how accurate my theory was, I, I did kind of like struggle with making a theory that didn't feel in some ways too on the nose <laughs> to be uh, authentic. Because like the Cain and Abel thing is not subtle. No, it's not. Right? It is It is a very blunt connection. And even having this theory that I was using to kind of check my answers as I went along, I was like, oh, God, it's like obvious to the point it felt amateurish of me to make it. Well, you know? it, it does. However, I think that's why Leo exists because there are a couple of theories that pop up where Leo goes, ah, that couldn't possibly be the case. Or, yeah. ah, that's an interesting connection there. I shall look into it. There are two things that I want to highlight. One is you've already brought up Cain and Abel and it is stupid, but <laughs> <Thank> like <you. laughs> trite even. That's a, that's a good word for it. It is definitely trite. But this is not a line from Cain to Abel. This is in fact a triangle of relationships because there is another character Ooh. with a biblical connection in the story. And that's where I'm going to pin it because let me, let me, sorry, David, I forgot where to begin here. <laughs> I, I know exactly what you mean. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I've already rambled for way too long. So the connection that we're given is that uh, Freddie knew then that she was going to sit down with a killer. Yes. I am going to pose the theory because Leo is so sure that that means that this is one of the four people that killed Carolyn. This is wrong. However, that means that I, I now have to justify the statement. I'm going to sit down with a killer. I think that Cain killed Isaac. That is my connection. That is oh my, my theory. Good gracious. I think this is the core of the story. There are three characters and like the theme that we're going with is that the scream is bringing back the like horrors and the tragedies of the past. And all of these characters are going to have to face their past. Now, Marigold seems far too sweet. And also she hasn't really been fleshed out in terms of her like tragic stuff. I think that, Freddie is stretching her theme here a bit to cover all three of them. 
wit we'll get to, but Kane, I think that his past and the way that he kind of connects this situation is that he killed Isaac either during those two weeks or he says that Isaac was stabbed five years ago and he gets really quiet about it. I think that that's our out for saying I was having lunch with a killer or a coffee with a killer is that Kane killed Isaac. And I think that it's to do with organized crime. What? Um, What on earth? (laughs) Here's the thing. There are these feds running around. I think that what is going on, Wit, Mm -hmm. is trying to- get Kane like justice or something like he's trying to do him in for a killing that he did a long time ago. I think that that's the connection between the feds and this whole situation because right. literally says like, now you have, you ever stabbed someone lately? I feel like that's like what the plot is. Uh huh. And well, we know, we know at some point along the way that wit wrote for the same paper as Carolyn. Are you suggesting that like, they were working together on this investigation. I'm going to say yes. Ah, okay. uh, I, I'm going to say maybe Isaac was involved in this investigation. And that's why Isaac got stabbed in the end because Kane was like trying to use a personal connection to further the story. Mm-hmm. And so they shut him down. And furthermore, I don't think that Carolyn is actually dead. So here's the thing. We talk about the scream. The scream is played multiple times. As a recording. Played being the operative yes. term there, I yes. gather. So this is why Leo's talking about vents and things, because I I don't think that Carolyn actually screamed. I think it was a recording of a scream. And the only character who has actually said they've seen the body is Wit, who is throwing a lot of shade at Kane. Yes. So I think that what has happened is because nobody with any authority has actually said the word murder. They've just said a body has been found. Yeah. Under the table. Nobody has said murder. I think that Wit has said, uh, Carolyn was totally murdered. And that, and this is the part where my theory starts to fall apart a bit, but I think that Wit and Carolyn maybe are trying to like get Kane locked up for whatever he did during that investigation five years ago, let's say, because that lines up with, with when he says that Isaac was stabbed. I think I'm that just that's- slowly <laughs> going down my list of the occurrences of the word murder in the story, and uh, we'll find it for me. Find it for me. Dozens. But do we actually have like confirmation from the police? I don't know. I mean, it's uh- look. I just know that the book is called "Woman in the Library," not "Dead Person in the Library." That's that's and true. I feel that's like true. I feel like that has to be significant. That said, I I do always I'm always cautious engaging with Solaris uh, book titles because I love them dearly. They're they're traps. They're risky, dangerous traraps that sound great. If you had come to me yesterday and and talked to me about my theory, and you did, like it was only today <laughs> it was in shambles. It was in shambles. But today I looked at the Isaac thing and thought, hmm, like a character from the Bible sacrificing yeah, someone to yeah. like save their own skin. Uh, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense to me. And especially if we're like flipping things around, if we're saying, because there's a romance here as well between Freddie and Kane. If we want that to like resolve, I mean, maybe it doesn't resolve well, but like if we want that I mean, to maybe resolve. It res- maybe it resolves you know by going well, this badly. Is, this is the thing, right? Because Kane is the bad one and Abel is the good one. It's it's hard to it's hard to flip. Before we wrap up here, Herds, I do have a question for you that you've 
cleverly skirted around. Have I? Oh, no. And that's that you've done a decent job explaining <laughs> Leo's role in the story. Have I? And you've done a decent job explaining the rest of the story. Oh, no. But <laughs> I need to know why both are in the same story. What difference does it make to this piece of metafiction for Leo to be the one whose emails are included rather than an editor? How does that journey wrap up? How oh, no. and why do we have these emails in the text if these crimes are so separate? Well, that's, I mean, that's the question, isn't it? See, my gut reaction is because I, I've talked about the bus. I've talked about how the bus is going to get set on fire and have to only have to go at a certain speed unless it'll it'll blow up yep. and then it'll turn into a boat. You know, a large stuff. gap using only a plank of wood exactly. to get air That's time. exactly it. That's what's going to happen. But Leo- I hope that I'm making these speed references properly. I haven't seen the movie in like 15 years. I will say, <laughs> I don't know that Leo's been described as being on the bus, which is kind of a weird detail now that I think about it. <laughs> oh God. Oh no. I definitely oh, have- no. I'm going to have to come back to this one next week, I think. But but just, just to throw anything out there- I would say that Leo is going to go down like a mad rabbit hole. Yeah. And that the link here is going to be that as the story goes on, Hannah is going to suspect Leo in real life of doing bad things. So therefore Freddie in the story is going to start like treating Leo poorly and suspecting him of the murder. And so that's going okay. to spiral both Leos out of control. Ugh. That's that's my prediction. That's like my gut my gut feeling. I'm excited. Herds, Ugh. I'm about to shake up the bus for you. You're going to throw the bus off the tracks, as it were? I am going to throw you under the bus. <laughs> no! That's a very bad idea. Especially if there's a bomb on the bus. <laughs> Next week, Herds, we will be covering chapters 12 to 24 of The Woman in the Library. Okay. But Herds, you will not be the only person what? in the solving chair. In the in the, the bus? The solving bus chair? The solving bus. <laughs> the solving you will be bus. under the bus and driving the bus will be Danny V. Oh my goodness. From Words and Nerds joining <laughs> us for the next two episodes to discuss this delightful book mm-hmm. are you foreshadowing that danny v is going to kill me on the show is that am i going to be the murdered one am i the leo i you know what herds i can neither confirm nor deny that's my least favorite phrase in the world all right well <laughs> this is your murder mystery world tour we will see you back here next week with more of the woman in the library by solari gentle thank you so much for joining us here on 2 ser 107.3 and we will see you next time